If y'all could, please open up with me to Zechariah chapter 14. If you uh, didn't bring uh, your Bible, uh, there should be Pew Bibles, uh, page 900, I be- or excuse me, 800. Uh, that should uh, be where you will find uh, our Bible text today. And uh, I say this every so often, if you're here with us, you don't have a Bible and you need one, take that one. Take the Pew Bible. It's on us. Just let me know so I can put another one down. That is what we want because we are a people of the word here and that is where you can find capital T truth, the truth that will set you free. Uh, Okay, Uh, Zechariah chapter 14. While y'all are opening up there, uh, I did a little postscripts article. This is not a test or a quiz to see who's reading their postscripts, but if you are not reading your postscripts, you will not find this uh, sermon introduction to be as cool as if you were. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All jokes aside, uh, what what I was getting at with that article that I wrote uh, in our weekly publication is that uh, these Bible verses, verses 6 through 11, are just jammed with biblical connection. And I didn't exhaust it. That was a off-the-top-of-my-head moment. And there was some, like, 15 Bible verses that were spattered throughout. You'll hear some of those. You might hear some new ones as well. But it's important for us to know, as we open up to this middle chunk of Zechariah 14, that God, through His Holy Spirit, has caused a... uh, First among equals opportunity here uh, of Bible interconnectivity. It's, um, uh, it doesn't make it more important or less important, but it, it does mean something. And it would be wise for us to pay attention to it. Uh, the other thing that I think is quite important is that uh, uh, once again we get uh, this distinct emphasis on God. Uh, that, that sounds almost silly coming from the pastor uh, of a Bible-believing church where we make it our business to worship and glorify God daily and most naturally on Sunday together. And yet, once again, in this middle portion, we see uh, not just the actions of God, not just the movement of God's people and the exposition around it, but really this pointing to and, and this and this. Uh, uh, beyond a regular emphasis on who our God is and more specifically who Jesus is. Of course then there would be Bible interconnectivity here if it's the Messiah that we're talking about. That prophesied one. That anointed one. That promised one. That promise fulfilling one. Jesus. Uh, One final thing. Uh, I've made mention of Voltaire before. Uh, Voltaire is a philosopher I love to hate on. Sorry, Voltaire, or followers of Voltaire, but he's just too easy. Uh, It's too easy to pick on him, and uh, he is known, as I mentioned before, uh, for his desire to do away with Sundays. If you can do away with a seven-day week, you can do away with Christianity, is what he said. Uh, I was using that when we were talking about uh, the Sabbath in particular, but uh, I couldn't help but uh, come back to this low-hanging fruit uh, as a a good way to come in to this emphasis on the Lord that we have here in Zechariah 14, because uh, his hopes would be dashed, even if... Voltaire were able to get rid of that seven-day week. Let's go to ten, or let's shrink it down to five, whatever he wanted to do, because he still would have had a problem. 
It's a problem that modern scholars still have a problem with. And it's that zero mark before, what would you say, Christ's birth? Or would you say the common era? And after death? Or maybe we should be politically correct and say after, what is it? I don't even know what it is. After the common era or something. I don't know, right? Uh, but, but it's so silly, right? Because it would be like if I called the sunrise the gaseous fireball rise. Happens every morning. The gaseous fireball rise. You mean the sunrise? Well, yeah, that's what I mean with zero A.D. I don't mean after death. I mean like, you know, I'm, oh, excuse me, I meant, you know, after this common era. Oh, so you're still, you're still measuring and marking it on this, this moment. This moment that... That's Jesus, right? This person. It's an interesting thought for us. To to see, uh, even in our society, how how connected the world is to the God who created it and to the God who is moving in it. And that's so important for us as we come to this, this doubly emphatic passage, this penultimate passage that means second to last. In, a, in the book of Zechariah, as the Lord is giving Zechariah words for his people to be encouraged by and to find hope in. And where then should they look but God himself? Our main point is that there is only one God. And he provides salvation to all who would believe and follow after him. We'll see it. But first let's pray and read God's word. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the intensity of it. And thank you for the beauty of it and the simplicity of it. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit it is a miraculous word. Not only miraculous because it's been preserved for thousands of years, but but it's miraculous because it works uh, uh, deep within us. By your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear today that we might not only worship and glorify you in this moment, but that we might move from here as followers and worshipers of you in our lives because that's what you call us to. Really, that's that's what you free us to. And so, Lord, would you do it today in Zechariah 14, verses 6 through 11. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the Word of the Lord, this Word, it remains forever. And we can praise God for it because within these words are the good news of Jesus, the empowering words of Jesus, the freeing words of Jesus. Our main point, remember, is that there's only one God and, and that He provides salvation to all who would believe and follow after Him. And we're going to see this in four points. I, and they all have to do with uniqueness. Uh, we'll see this very obviously when I use the word unique four times. Uh, first, unique day. Second, unique water. Third, unique God. And fourth, a unique promise. So first then, we see in these Bible pa- this Bible passage a unique day in verses 6 and 7. Something unusual is happening in verses 6 and 7 of Zechariah 14. The natural order of creation is being bent. Not broken, but bent. Not so much nowadays, but certainly in my youth. I was an avid hunter. I, I loved hunting deer. Uh, my father and I would go out uh, all the time. And when we were out, uh, there is a certain uh, hunting trip that we went on uh, that I remember, uh, not because I got the biggest deer I ever got, but because it was the coldest I feel like I ever was in my entire life. Uh, it was freezing. Now, this is Tennessee. It's, it's not like we are super way up north in Canada or something like that, right? It's not like we had tons of snow, but this day was frigid. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was single digits feeling like negative teens was what the weather would tell us, right? And man, I had on all the stuff, and the stuff wasn't helping, and I was Freezing. I was shivering so badly that I couldn't stop. And there is a moment when you're out hunting. If you've ever been, it doesn't have to be hunting. Uh, if you're out walking, if you're outside, uh, right before the sunrise, right before it, and it, right before the sun peaks up, it gets what feels like, and I don't know the scientific data behind this. I'm not sure. But this is just anecdotal me feeling. It gets even more cold. And I don't know if it's the anticipation of knowing that the sun's about to crest and peak and give me warmth, or if it's something else, but my goodness, oh, it was so cold, and I was waiting and praying for the sun to rise. My dad's beard was frosted over. I had this thing on, and there's frost all over us, and we're shivering, waiting on the sun to rise. It was freezing. And what we see in verses 6 and 7 would be like If the weather that had been predicted like that, the frost of the night existed, okay? So it would be like if I was sitting there and I was freezing cold and it was so cold and there's frost everywhere and then right after the coldest moment before the sunrise, the temp turned 72, the sun didn't rise, but it was like there was one and we could see very clearly. That's what we're talking about here. And you say, whoa! Frost melts just 72 degrees right across the border. For some of you, you're like, no, that's not normal. 69, you know, whatever you think it is, you know, 75, you know, wherever you are, it's the normal temp, right? And you think, whoa, no sun to give us warmth, but we're warm. No sun to give us light, but there's light. There was frost, but it's not cold anymore. 
what is going on? It's unnatural. The, the natural order is, is being bent on this unusual day. This unique day. And this natural, that is literally nature, this natural uniqueness, it it's spotlights the spiritual uniqueness of the day that Zechariah is prophesying about when the self-proclaimed, God-attested Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be crucified. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. When the sixth hour, that's noon, by the way. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's three. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Revelation chapter 21 verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Now let's read verses 6 and 7 with those Bible passages in mind. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time. So it's neither day nor night. There, there's this kind of lack of light, right? And at evening time, there will be light. And what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Incredible realities to a unique day, revealing the unique God. But before we get there, on this unique day, there can also be seen unique water. Verse 8 of our text, that's our second point before we get to that third one which addresses God specifically. Uh, so now we're in verse 8 and I, uh, uh, the illustrations just keep coming today. Uh, well digging. Y'all know about well digging, right? <laughs> well digging is a difficult task even today, but especially then. Uh, so let's remove from us all of the giant augers and water detection systems and uh, tools of modern day up to and including dump trucks, diggers, even shovels, all of these things. And let's take ourselves back 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 3,500 years, and let's start to dig a hole praying that if we dig deep enough that we'll start to see some water seeping up. And then we need to make it big enough and so now you've got to make it big enough. And then you've got to bring in stones. And you've got to bring in mud or clay. And you've got to make sure that it's waterproof so that water that's coming up will rise a little bit so you could get that water up in your bucket and raise it up all the way. It's just as hard today. If you've ever had to deal with digging a well or you know somebody, or you know somebody who has a well, just ask them about it. It's incredibly frustrating. It's incredibly difficult. Water is a big deal. It's a big deal now, and it was a big deal then. God uses it as an illustration, as I mentioned to the little ones, a lot because of this. Well, if well digging is a big deal, if it's too hard, if it's a difficult task, wouldn't it be better then to head for the source? Uh, maybe y'all are familiar with this, but uh, a a little bit way to go, not too long actually, uh, the majority of wealthy and healthy cities and towns were uh, on a river or a stream 
or near a spring. The reason why is because water means watering your crops, means watering your plants, means watering your animals, means watering yourselves, right? And if you have to get water over and over and over uh, for miles and miles, it becomes difficult to sustain a large population. And so these towns would rise up around these springs, around these rivers, around these lakes, and it would be a, a natural blessing. And so why not, instead of digging wells, we just head to the source, either rivers or springs? It's a good idea. And the Lord seizes on that. Not just here, but elsewhere. But the water that we're talking about is not physical. It's spiritual, as I was mentioning to the little ones. Verse 8, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Let me just read John chapter 4. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, that is the woman at the well, uh, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She's at Jacob's well. She's at the most famous well. The well that has not run dry over those some thousands of years. The well that God blessed with. The well that God blessed his people with. The well that God raised up his people's prosperity with. And this Samaritan woman is there in the daytime. She shouldn't have been in the daytime. It should have been early in the morning, but she couldn't go there because she was ostracized. She was a pariah of the people because of her lifestyle. Stepping out multiple times. Jesus knew that. She knew that. She didn't know Jesus knew that. She thinks they're having a conversation about Jacob's well, about water. Are you thirsty? Give me a drink. Jesus tells her about some living water and she says, listen man, you're saying I don't need to do this every day? You got to give me some of that. If you can give me water that I take a sip of one time and never need to drink from the well again, let's do it right now. But Jesus wasn't talking about water for physical sustaining. He was talking about spiritual water. Where's the spring of this spiritual water? Well, we've seen it from a couple different places. Ezekiel chapter 47 is a prophecy from God through Ezekiel to his people that shows this new temple. This new temple is a perfect cube. And in this new temple rising up, what do we see coming out from the very middle of it but a spring, a, wa a source, a fount. And this water begins as a trickle. And as you watch it go out of the gate, it's a little deeper. Your shoes get wet. And as you go out a little further, your shins are in the water. And as you keep going farther and farther, you got to swim. It's a source of water. It's a miraculous source because it's coming out of, out of uh, uh, no ground uh, like we would think of, no snow from the mountain. It's coming from God himself out of the temple. And if you recall, uh, some of you are in Sunday school class, you're about to march through Leviticus and a few other books, right? Leviticus and... I, I, and, and yeah, numbers. So y'all are kind of going through the Pentateuch. And what you see there are, are temple codes, ceremonial law. And one of the things that we know about the ceremonial law is that it is in every aspect revealing the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on our behalf. And so every sheep, every lamb, every bull, every goat, every morning dove that was killed in that place 
is revealing the Lord Jesus' sacrifice for us. Every vestment and color and garb and curtain and architecture and bowl and lamp, every single one of them is revealing the reality of what God wants to do for His people, which is save them. Every single piece. Why shouldn't you wear a a 50% cotton and 50% satin before Jesus came? You know, that's something that you hear sometimes. Can't wear something made of two different things. Who cares? God cares because He needed a pure sacrifice on the cross that He might pour out His wrath on somebody who could give us righteousness. Because a lamb won't cut it. That's why you had to kill so many. And so you need something pure and perfect. Something whole. Not a part. Not a piece. But the whole. We see that over and over and over in these temple laws. And so out of the temple then we see this water coming. What do we see as Jesus begins to embody the reality that that He's going to tear down the temple and then in three days rise it up again is that Jesus is saying that He is the fulfillment of such ceremonial laws. That's why you see the big old thing coming down from the sky in Peter's dream saying, hey, you can have bacon now. It's because Jesus fulfilled all those purity laws and demands of the code that we might be saved. Those things are but shadows of the reality, of the fount, of the spring of Calvary where Jesus was crucified where He received the wrath of God for His people. And yet, in that moment, like a fount, pouring as a trickle at first, and then rising to our ankles, and then shins and legs and torso, until it was over our head, is a true stream that makes glad the place of the Lord, because there is salvation. And it flows, not just freely, but powerfully. It's the good news. And it starts on the cross, really before. But you see it most poignantly there, at the eternal spring of Calvary, a unique, spirit-cleansing water. There is a unique day with unique water, but... Uh, It it all comes from our third point, which is really what I was just saying, from the unique God. Verse 9. Two things happen very quickly in verse 9. First, we see a public establishment of Jesus' kingship. Jesus' blood makes Him king. Jesus' divinity makes Him king. But the salvation narrative is such that Jesus' kingship is not acknowledged by Israel, let alone the entire world. In fact... As he was crucified, he was mocked with a sign that said, Hey, here's the king of Israel, of the Jews. Right? It was a joke. And yet, in the irony of God, the truest statement that perhaps those Jews had ever said. Jesus' public fulfillment of his kingship will come more slowly. It has... It has truly begun, His reign has, and, and publicly it's coming to fruit over some time until He returns again on the clouds. 
uh, you know who does a really good job of this. I, I don't know if I've ever... Uh, if I've ever done a Lord of the Rings illustration yet. Um, some of you are very familiar with Lord of the Rings. Some of you might be thinking, huh? Uh, but pastors are usually made fun of for using the Lord of the Rings too much, too often, because it's just too easy. Uh, but I, I couldn't help but think of Tolkien and this master class trilogy of the Lord of the Rings and, and really one character, uh, which is this kind of truth and allegory of Jesus and his life, because there's this king who uh, certain individuals know is king, uh, but, but he's just some guy at the beginning of the book. He's cool, but he's just some guy. He's a ranger. Doesn't even really care about his name. Fleeing from his name a little bit, but we'll say that over there. But over the course of the series, this, this king, who, who is a king uh, not in name only, but, but really a, a king by his blood, he, he fulfills that at the end. And the day is saved and it's beautiful and wonderful and awesome and powerful and all of the cool stuff that goes with the Lord of the Rings. But, but the reality stands that, that you start from this beginning. And if you're familiar, you know that, that Aragorn lives this life and comes into fulfillment. And it's, it's a perfect illustration of what it is that we're talking about now. Which is king by blood, but, but not yet publicly. In the same way, Jesus, the sufferer's crown of thorns, is exchanged for the crown of Jesus, the King. That's what the Gospel is. We confess it. Uh, uh, the uh, Apostles' Creed, uh, Peter himself said these words, as well as Paul and others, that, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He, he's seated on a throne. Revelation, we see that, that Jesus is crowned with a rainbow being worshipped by elders and angels alike. Jesus the King. That's the reality that plays out as, as He not only uh, sits as King with enemies for His footstool, so the Word tells us, but, but as He sits as King after having brought His people with Him. Because that was His desire, was to bring His people into His kingdom, which He did through that suffering and through that life-death. And resurrection. And lest we forget, the establishment of Jesus' kingship is coupled with the reminder of his divinity. Verse 9 in totality. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. What do we confess this morning? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But, but this is not just a uniqueness as in singularity. By, by that I mean there is only one God. That's there. That's true. But, but there's, there's something more. There's something beyond that. Yes, the, the Lord is unique. He is singular. But at the same time, what sets Him apart in this way, what reveals this reality of His singularity of divinity is that, is that God is uniquely and singularly powerful enough to rule not just the world, but the universe. Once you look back in time, recorded history, to see how many times a ruler with great authority has done well. I challenge you to show me one. That a ruler left unchecked will not fall to the corruption of himself or herself. It's reality. 
history and the blood spilled across every page is proof. But God gives us His Word to seal the deal. And yet God's unique establishment of a kingship for Himself is not something that we quiver and quake at, but rather rejoice at. For now we have someone with the capacity, with the perfection, with the equity, with the justice and the mercy and the grace, all of it, the foresight, the wisdom, to reign rightly and truly. Philippians chapter 2 Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Among the myriad things making God unique, one of these is the capability, the capacity to perfectly rule the world. The unique God Up to this point then, and we're almost done, we have seen a unique day with unique water, both stemming from the unique God, who now makes a unique promise. In our fourth point, verses 10 and 11. A couple things happen uh, through picture in verse 10. Uh, uh, Number one, God's power is shown forth by the literal reforming of mountains. Don't don't miss that. Uh, Chapter 14, whether whether it's... uh, uh, um, Uh, example or illustrative or reality, right? We don't need to worry about that because the point remains true. Verse 10, the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. In other words, boom, this mountainous region, no more. It's flat. And what do you have behind it? Jerusalem, raising up. God's power is shown forth by literal reforming of mountains. Number two, Jerusalem's loftiness compared to the flattened ground around her is regally fitting and tactically fitting. It's regally fitting because the throne stands above those that are around. And so God, as He is seated on the throne, Jesus, as He takes His seat from this place, His city, what do you see? But those that are essentially and illustratively bowed down before Him. Plain, mountain. That's why mountains usually have high regard in whatever culture you find them in. But not just regally speaking, tactically speaking, for those who are familiar with this type of language, uh, military speak, war games, etc., would you rather be on the plain or would you rather be on the mountain if you had two armies looking at one another? Answer, mountain. Okay? Every single time. In fact, if you're on the one mountain and you've got planes surrounding that mountain and you have enough forces like, for instance, the defenses as well, of gates, like we see, then what happens is that you uh, essentially create an impregnable fortress. You cannot get in. And that's what we see in the Old Testament even. Not even the full might of the Babylonians. Not the full might of the Assyrians. No one could break the defenses of Jerusalem. But they could starve them out. They had to siege it. You couldn't take it. Too difficult. The losses would be catastrophic. And so what do we see here but a regally and tactically fitting loftiness for the Lord's seat of power. And then thirdly, speaking of those gates and the original design of Jerusalem, the thought and picture of a Jerusalem pre-destruction. Because remember, Jerusalem doesn't look like she once did. 
She has been broken and destroyed and torn down and rebuilt and torn down again and rebuilt again. She is not like she once was, but the promise of seeing Jerusalem as it is described in the previous history of God's people would raise hope for the people of God. And that's the point. God is making a unique promise to His people of life and of security and of hope. Verse 11, And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. This can only be achieved by and through God Himself. And we see it in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if we thought we were finished with the Gospel, we're not. Because every single one of these verses are particularly revealing the good news of Jesus and His power against sin, Satan, and suffering, and His reign and His rule supreme as He brings His people with us. Because John chapter 17, verses 17 through 19, it's a prayer by Jesus. And little did we know that we see the truths and the realities some years ago, even in Zechariah 14. This is the prayer from Jesus. Sanctify them in the truth. Talking about His people, His disciples. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. That is, I sanctify myself. That they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is saying... I want them to be sanctified in truth. I'm going to sanctify myself. Uh, I'm not going to stick a long time on this, but bear with me. Set apart, verse 11. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. If you have the ESV Bible in front of you, I hope that your translation does as well, or it uses this word. Uh, the uh, Hebrew is set apart. Uh, set apart. Uh, that's sanctify. That's the word. Sanctify. That's what sanctify means, is to be set apart, to be moved aside for some use. And so, what do we see here? God is promising, I'm never going to move you over here for destruction. What does Jesus say? I am going to move myself over here for destruction. I'll take your place. I'll take it for you. If you will but come with me into my kingdom. For their sake, I consecrate myself. For their sake, I sanctify myself. For their sake, I set myself apart. What does God promise? There shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. That is, set apart to the Lord for destruction. How can that be? It can be by the Lord Himself, by Jesus. There is only one God... And He provides salvation to all who would believe and follow after Him. Instead of my usual multi-application flow, today I only have one application. And it's for you to answer this question. What makes God unique? What makes God unique? Can you speak that or write it? You can start with Zechariah 14 if you'd like. You can start with my own words if you'd like. But realize that, that we've only barely scratched the surface this morning. If you came with someone today, spouse, parent, friend, talk to them about this question. If you need someone, 
Call me or write an email on God's uniqueness. I would love to receive something like that if you feel like you don't have anybody that you could talk to on a question like this. What makes God unique? Do whatever you want with this, but answering the question is only the beginning. Explaining it, explaining it is where you'll start to see fruit bear out. And it might be hard because sometimes we can grace the pews or we can act like we grace the pews or we can say we read the scriptures or we can say we live the life. But the question can be very difficult to answer and it shouldn't be for God's people. What makes God unique? Talk about it today or this week. Talk about it with me. We're about to sing a song, a hymn. Let me close with just one verse from this hymn. Let every creature rise and bring peculiar honors to our King. Angels descend with songs again and earth repeat the loud Amen. Peculiar, that is unique. Peculiar honors for a peculiar God. Unique worship for a unique God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can singularly praise and worship you as the one God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Lord, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, for us. Thank you for his strength and power and grace and mercy for the fount that comes from his crucifixion. The fount of salvation for our own lives. Lord, help us to ponder upon such uh, uh, simple and yet massive questions like what makes you unique. Thank you for your word which answers such things. Lord, be with us as we continue to worship and praise your name today. In Jesus' name, amen.